Something is changing and shifting about what we expect from what we believe. I do believe that now for roughly 1,800 or so years that Christianity has been this separate branch that was meant to be grafted into, it's meant to be Gentiles grafted into a, an olive tree that existed so that we could benefits from, benefit from the blessings of the patriarchs and the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I believe that we've pulled it off as a branch and we've propped it up. And we've propped it up with all these man-made inventions. And that it's become something separate so that we don't know what to expect from what we believe. We move from one emotional high in a service or at an event or at a uh, rally or what's another, a conference. We move from one emotional high to the next. And that's what we think Christianity is supposed to be or what our belief uh, is supposed to yield. And we get glimpses, I think, especially in the charismatic world, if I can call it that, where we at least believe in the Holy Spirit and his gifts moving for today, for us, for today. We get glimpses of the heart of God because I believe that is the heart of God, him putting his spirit in us so that we can move forward in power and we can see supernatural things and miracles around us. And so when we believe with that kind of faith, we're going to see those things. But, but I believe that one of the, the, the main problems of what we call Christianity uh, comes from a misunderstanding of 2 Corinthians 5.21. None of this is in the message. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. And what we see is that the righteousness that Jesus has was credited to us. And we believe that that is the beginning and the end of our faith. Because one day we're hoping to stand before God and him to say, I don't see any sin because of the righteousness of my son. And that is the ultimate goal of our faith. I think for Christianity that this is a big problem for us. Because we see that as the ultimate goal. And, and let me explain to you why I believe that that's such a big problem. Because I don't believe that that's what Jesus would say that our ultimate goal is. Not because that's what Nick feels or Nick is disenfranchised with the institution of Christianity. But because I believe that Jesus' mindset was for us, us to set free the oppressed and to break off the yoke here and now where we're living while we're here on the earth and that we would bring heaven to earth and we'd be able to live in heaven, which would be where righteousness is all around us and we're eating the fruit of it all the time. Does something about that resonate in your heart as I'm saying it? This is not what we're taught inside the institution of Christianity, but this is what's in the word of God. Some of you in here, maybe you grew up and you didn't know your parents or you didn't know your dad or your mom. Or maybe you didn't spend much time with them. But personality wise, you turned out just like them. I think one of our big issues is that we've been separated from our family. From our family the majority of this book that you carry around, our family, okay? 
We've been separated from our family. We don't know where we come from. And so we don't know who we are, nor do we learn from the, the mistakes in the past. We don't understand what's good about us, what needs to be preserved, and what needs to go. And so we end up repeating the cycle of sin over and over again, and we end up confused. And the problem is, is that there's never a place in which we're neutral. We are either a slave to the systems and the spirit of this world or a slave to righteousness. It's one or the other. We have to be educated so that we understand what righteousness really is. We can't be saved by our own works. That's a given. Let's call that, uh, let's call that um, nursery. The nursery is for zero to two-year-olds, for parents that are willing to trust the people that are back there. Separate message. Let's call the fact that we're not saved by our works nursery. So if you're standing hard and fast on that, just reckon that's elementary. That's preschool, nursery, okay? Now we are saved to do good works. Righteousness. Man, I want to be careful not to go too far down this road. There's 27 million slaves in the world today. This means no pay, 24-7, they work, and they cannot leave. 27 million. That's twice as many as were traded in the North Atlantic slave trade, slavery in America. Twice as many today. There is injustice happening all around the world, not even just slavery. I mean, that's, we're talking sex, sex slaves. We're talking uh, slaves in the textile industry, slaves uh, cutting rocks and making bricks all day long uh, that are sent out to fish. Little children drowning because they don't know how to swim and they're, they're kidnapped from their homes and they're spending all day working for someone else who is making money and profiting off of them. Slaves during the North Atlantic slave trade costed around $40,000 a piece. Today, slaves can be bought and sold for an average of $90. And it's happening all around the world. That's just, that's just scratching the surface of injustice that's happening all around the world. And I think something inside us is ignited about that because we recognize, oh, no, this isn't right. But what stirs me more than even that, if you can believe it, if you can receive it, what stirs me more than that is I believe that there is oppression within the group of people who call themselves Christians that is keeping them from being able to be truly free so that even when they attempt to go and do humanitarian works, they are reproducing what's inside of them so it's not pure and it ends up making things worse. Because we ourselves haven't become truly free. This does lead into what we're going to talk about today. Pastor Nick talked last week about how when Nehemiah was moved over what was happening in Jerusalem, that it wasn't about a wall. Do you remember that? It wasn't about the wall. The wall was what they could see. The wall was what was physical, right? The problem was what was going on in the spiritual realm. That's where the real ruins were. 
So this morning, let's open up to Nehemiah 2. And let's read about our family. Let's start in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Why? Because the king had the power to snap his fingers and Nehemiah's life would be over. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Did you catch that part? The city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins. We have to get outside ourselves for just a second. To Nehemiah, it mattered that it was the city where his fathers were buried because that reminded him of his history, of the legacy. It reminded him of the destiny of the people of God and what that city was supposed to represent. It wasn't just a piece of land. It represented a refuge for the world. It represented a safe haven for the world. And when he says the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, in essence, he's saying the hope of the world lies in ruins because that's what Jerusalem represented. It was the city of David. It was where God had put his name. Everywhere in the world was down from Jerusalem and Jerusalem was up everywhere from the world because it represented something. And Nehemiah was heartbroken that it lied in ruins. The king said to me, can you imagine hearing this from one of the most powerful men in the world? Arguably the most. What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now we know the story. We know what ends up happening. We know that thousands of people join Nehemiah to help build this wall that's two and a half miles long, that in most places is 40 feet high and eight and a half feet thick. We know that many people, 42 groups to be exact, come and are under his administration. And that he gives them instructions and directions on how to build this massive wall. But what does he start with? What attitude does he start with here in verse 5? So that I can rebuild it. What might our attitude be if we were to look and see something in shambles, in ruins? I want to confess this. My attitude up until a few months ago, maybe even a month ago, 
has been that I was bitter towards previous generations for the way that they've left things. That's what I saw. I was bitter about the food that we were eating or that was being served to everybody because I realized that sometime over the course of a generation, everybody let their guard down and all of a sudden we're feeding our kids stuff that makes them sick. This is what I was thinking. I'm letting you into my heart. I was looking at the church or what's called the church and looking at Christianity and I saw it tainted with so many things, men building their own empires and their own kingdoms to make themselves wealthy off the backs of other people, that it was all about superstardom and fame and the praise of man. And I was disenfranchised because I looked at all that and I blamed previous generations. And that was my attitude. But you know what Nehemiah didn't do? He didn't point the finger or blame anybody. Do you know what his attitude was? I'll go rebuild it. Do you know why that's so powerful? Because if we are the victim, if I'm the victim, and if things are happening just to me, and that's the way that my life is defined, well, this is happening, and then they did this to me, and then this happened to me, it's not even to say that those things didn't happen. But it's what attitude, what mindset will actually lead to progress and advancement. Because you could be justified in identifying everyone that's caused your situation to be what it is. And you may even be right. But that mindset won't move you forward, not one step. The only acceptable attitude is, I'll rebuild it. I'll rebuild it. Something that shouldn't be in ruins is, and it's not acceptable my heart is broken, I'll rebuild it. That has to be our attitude. Because if we take on the attitude of a victim, if we point the finger and ascribe blame, we may sit in our mess, in our junk, in our garbage, justified. And never move out of it. And then all of a sudden to the next generation, what do we become? The problem. So where are you today? Do you sit justified as you point the finger at everyone else and say, this is why I am the way I am. This is why this is the way that it is. Do we blame others or do we say, I'll rebuild it? I'll rebuild it. What attitude do you have today? That's the title of this message today. I can rebuild it. I can rebuild it. Can you say that with me? Just in faith on the count of three. One, two, three. I can rebuild it. We're going to do it again. One, two, three. I can rebuild it. One more time. One, two, three. I can rebuild it. Our responsibility. My responsibility. This is not a new idea. Though none go with me. I'm a little nasally, but you still hear that. Still I will follow. Though none go with me. Still I will follow. I can rebuild it. Let's keep reading. Then the king 
with the queen sitting beside him. Don't tempt me to go down this road. It could be Esther. I'm not sure. Ask me. Some say Esther. Some say Dyspasia or whatever. We don't know. Ask me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Did you hear that? The king was pleased to send him. What did he originally have to battle with? I was very much afraid, but it turns out that the king was pleased to send me. I misunderstood where the king was at. I thought the king would be mad or angry at me as I requested this, but it turns out that he was pleased to send me. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, now he's getting bold. May I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. Take a little another step. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king all, had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Bring up that one slide about what Nehemiah's part was and what the king's part was, if you could please. So I want us to get very clear on what Nehemiah was responsible to do and then what the king did in response. We see Nehemiah praise. That's what we covered last week. Nehemiah's heart was broken. We saw that Nehemiah repented. Now, did Nehemiah say, Lord, will you please just let me rebuild the walls? No, he repented and mourned over what? Y'all can speak to me over sin, over their sins and the sins of the fathers. And he put himself in that category. This was one of the main things that we covered last week as we prayed through that service. It was a powerful service. We put ourselves in the position of the one who was to blame. And we said, let the blame fall on me and repented on behalf of the sins of the people and the sins of our fathers. And said, let it fall on me. We're reminded constantly that we're just not worthy to absolve the sin. But Jesus is. And he did. So we see Nehemiah praise. And then when the king says, what is it that you want? It's in the king's timing, isn't it? The provision comes. Because Nehemiah was sad. But the king said, why are you sad? This brought about the conversation that led to the petition. So Nehemiah petitions, look, this is what I'm wanting to do. And I'll need to be gone for this amount of time. He makes the plans. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to need this and I'm going to need this. But it's the king who permits him to go. It's the king who provides the resources. And it's the king who protects him on the journey. The problem is when we get our role mixed up. When we neglect to pray. So let me ask you this in here. Is your prayer life in ruins? Oh, I, I want to pray. I, I'm, 
I'm looking forward to the time when I will pray. Oh, that it's been something that I've been meaning to do. Are you praying? Is that a regular part of your life? And not you throwing up quick prayers, connecting with him. Prayer. Are you taking care of your part? And then once, now remember, Nehemiah didn't ask for his own kingdom in the palace. Remember, he was a cupbearer to the king living in the palace in the citadel of Susa in Persia. Right? Yes, yes. He didn't ask for more comfort in his own world. What was he asking to rebuild? The city of God, the kingdom of God. Because after he prayed and mourned, the sadness in his heart was because the kingdom of God, the city of God was in ruins. And so he petitioned the king. Are you asking the Lord for his kingdom to advance? Has he spoken to you about his kingdom? And are you actively asking for different aspects of his kingdom to come about on this earth? Think about that. We're asking for our own kingdom most of the time for the sake of our own kingdom. Lord, can you give me this? Can you do this? Can you take this person out of my life? Can you make me more like this? Can you help me do this? Can you? We're, we're, we're often aware of what we want. But have you heard from the Lord about what is the desire of his heart? Has that become the desire of your heart? Because that's when he'll give you the desires of your heart. And you say, well, why do I have to get his desires? Because his desires are better than yours. And they last forever. They don't fade away or get stolen or rust or get destroyed or fade so he's trying to say, hey, this is the better way. Ask me about my kingdom. Ask me what I want. Ask me what's on my heart. And then when we get it, do we say, so Lord, give me, give me that. What's on your heart? Let it be, Lord. Let it come and then let me take part in that. I, I want to take part in that. I want to be a part of that, Lord. So let that come. Let that happen. I can rebuild it. I can rebuild it. And then do you make plans? I'm asking him for it. And so now we're going to plan as if it's going to happen. We're going to start making plans. And we're going to start getting ready. So that when that time comes and the king says, what is it you want? I know what I want. Because I've prayed and my heart's been changed. I've got my petition ready and I've got the plans ready. Lord, will you let it be this? Now, Nehemiah thought he was going down there to rebuild some walls. But what he ends up doing is being a governor for 12 years and helping reestablish the culture along with some other great men. So he has no idea what it will eventually lead to. What he knows is this is the first step, and this is what I need help in. A man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. He can only see what's right in front of him. But the Lord sees way down the road, and he sees, hey, Nehemiah, you're not just a cupbearer so that you can be comfortable but so that you can have access to the king. And when the time comes and he says, what is it you want? You will now be a source of provision so that my kingdom can be rebuilt. Is that the way that you're thinking with what's been put in your hands? Are you thinking I've only been given what I've got to help build the kingdom? Is that your attitude? 
Or if you were in Nehemiah's spot, would you be wondering how you could get a bigger room where you slept? Or maybe how you could change out your roommates. Maybe how you could have better hours, better clothes. What would you be asking for? But then the king, oh, the heart of the king, he was pleased to permit Nehemiah. That's our, that's our king's heart. Don't you know that he's pleased to give you what you ask for? The story of the wicked judge and the widow, as the widow is pleading her cause, and the wicked judge is pushing her away, but she's still persistent, persistent. We've wrongly interpreted that to think that it means that we're supposed to persist because if we keep pushing God, eventually he'll give in. The whole purpose of that story was to say, if this is how a wicked judge acts and eventually can be moved to give the widow her plea, how much more the loving, righteous God who created you is he waiting to give you what you ask for? The persistent neighbor who knocks on the door and says, give me bread, I've got a visitor. And the person's in the house and he's like, I'm already asleep in bed with my kids, get away. And he keeps knocking on the door, says that his friend will get up and give him what he's asking for, not because of his friendship, but because of his indignation, his shameless audacity. The point of that story is not to say that God is like a sleeping man who doesn't want to get up from his bed and give us what we ask for. But to say, if a man who is lazy and wicked will get up from his sleep to go and give this man some bread, how much more so the God who never sleeps or slumbers, will he give you what you ask for? We misunderstand the heart of the king. He is pleased to give us what we ask for. And then when he gives us what we ask for, what does he do? He provides for what we'll need. We need only ask. And he protects us along the way. This is our king. He's waiting. He says, will you get on board with my kingdom? I don't want to put my stamp of approval on you continually wanting to build your kingdom. I'm saying get on board with my kingdom because you tell me that you love me. You say you want to move forward. You say you want freedom in every area. You say you're letting your guard down. You say that I'm Lord of your life, but you keep wanting to build your kingdom. I am trying to spare you from the devastation and the corruption that will result if I give you what you're asking for. Will you recognize that my kingdom will last forever? Lay down your rights, take up your cross, deny yourself, and then follow me where I'm going. Because my way is better. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The more that I read through Nehemiah, the more that I recognize that I can make a pretty good case for the fact that he's just going back and reading scripture and then just doing what he reads. In Leviticus 26, let's go there.
Because remember, the year approximately that Nehemiah rebuilt the walls was 445. The decree declaring the liberation of the captives was 538. So it was almost 100 years later. Before that, Isaiah had prophesied about Babylon falling, about how long the captivity would last. Jeremiah showed what would happen to get them back. These all preceded Nehemiah. Daniel prayed a specific prayer, which Daniel also got from Deuteronomy 28, and I would argue Leviticus 26 as well. But we just see these guys are able to go back and read each other's work and see the prescription for getting free. How appropriate is that? Look in Leviticus 26. Look at verse 31. So Nehemiah had access to this as it was, it was the writings of Moses. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. And I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw up my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Nehemiah could say, yeah, that's exactly what happened to us. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. And then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the time that it lies desolate. The land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths that you lived in it. He's able to look at that and say, yeah, 70 years of captivity. And we didn't honor the Sabbaths nor the years of Jubilee the whole time that we were there. It looks like exactly what he said would happen in his word is what happened. And so then he goes back and he reads about, but if my people in Deuteronomy 28, flip there for just a second. In Deuteronomy 28 and verse 9, it says, The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground, and the land he swore to your forefathers to give you. Nehemiah knows that if he will go back and obey the commands of the Lord, that God will cause that city to prosper and the whole world will be able to see it and it will stand as a testimony. He's able to go back in the word and read about the specific instructions that he needs to follow for the land to be restored and healed. It would be nice if we had that same advantage, wouldn't it? If we had a book that we could go back and read and see what we were supposed to do and begin to implement those things and then see the blessings of God poured out on us so that the whole world would know that we are the people of God and they would fear him. It would be awesome if we had a book like that. That told us how to live as a people. My goal is not to be condescending or patronizing. But I'm saying that because I feel that our situation merits it. Because in my view, 
I believe that this religion is in shambles and is in ruins. We keep trying to make this work, this man-made system, and it's not working. And so then we can sit and point the finger or we can play the victim. We can say, well, our situation is unique. We live in America, so it's, it's hard for us. It's all around us. My situation is unique. I'm the victim. Others have done this. And so now what can we do? What is there that can be done? Let's bring it a little closer to home. I have an addiction. You don't understand. My situation is different. You don't understand my situation. If you, if you don't have my exact same situation, I'm talking you're the same age as me. You've got the same name. You were raised by the same parents. We come from the... If you don't understand every facet of my life, then you can't tell me what's right for me. We have isolated ourselves and put ourselves on an island where we don't have to answer for our ungodly behavior. Where every addiction is excused as something that is beyond our control that we have no control over. As opposed to a stronghold that's been built off of lies that we need divine deliverance from. And so we become victims and there's nothing that we can do about it. Am I right? I'm feeling a little alone. No, I don't feel alone. We have to recognize the trap that we've fallen into. Nehemiah recognized it. He was heartbroken when he heard that the people were in trouble and disgrace. And he had to take direct action. He had to move. Anybody know what tomorrow is? Did someone say Monday? Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Martin Luther King Jr. had uh, promiscuity and moral things in his life. So did King David. We talk about him a lot. I'm not saying that Martin Luther King Jr. was King David. What I'm saying is, I think the righteous things that he did are worth us talking about. I think many of the things that he did were very exemplary. And I think that we would do well to follow many of the things that he did. I do believe that in many ways that he was a prophet. That's, that's me. In 1963, in the month of April, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a response called A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. That letter was in response to a newspaper article that was taken out by eight white clergymen. Y'all stick with me here for a second as we go down this road. They were made up of Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians. I don't know all the rest of the things that they were made up of, but they were writing from a different perspective. And they said in their letter that they, that they published, had published, we think it would be better if these acts of protest and these demonstrations were done in a different way, in a more peaceable way. In fact, we think it would be better if you allowed the courts to do their job and let this all play out in the laws. It may happen slower than you want, 
but we would say to trust God and that it will eventually happen. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from that jail, which is already hanging a lantern on what he was willing to suffer for his cause. But what he said in that was there's a reason that I'm in this jail. There's a reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. He had affiliates. This was part of his strategy. And I believe it's a strategy from heaven that he tapped into. He said there are four steps that we take when we get a, a request from one of our affiliates around the country, of which they had many. People saying, can you please come help us? We're hurting. There's injustice here. He said, number one, we'll get there and we will collect the facts and the evidence and we will see if injustice is occurring. The second thing that we'll do is we will make negotiations with the powers that be. The third thing that they'll do, he's trying to make negotiations. <laughs> he thinks he's an adult. The third thing that they'll do is they will go through self-purification. This is his words. The fourth thing that they'll do is they'll take direct action. They use the word tension. They said that we see tension is rising and that's not a good thing. He said, I like the tension. I'm glad that the tension is being brought up because it exists underneath the surface. Something has to be done. I want to bring that back to scripture in Esther chapter four, Mordecai comes to Esther and says to her, Hey, they're going to kill us all. Esther responds back. Okay. Then let's all fast and pray. I'll fast and pray. You fast and pray with me. And I will go to the King, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That was her attitude. Part of the self-purification that Dr. King and his followers would go through is they would allow themselves to get punched and slapped in the face to see if the people who were going to demonstrate were at a place internally where they could withstand that kind of abuse and not retaliate. They had them go through the question, are you ready to endure jail? They would go through this it was emptying themselves of themselves or any concern for self so that they were truly ready to stand for the cause. I see this in what Nehemiah did. I see this in what Esther did. Because then Esther went to the king, the powers that be, ready to negotiate on behalf of her people. She took direct action. I believe that this is a system of heaven. I would flip two things around, though. I would say when we see injustice occurring around us, that we first, after seeing that, yes, there's injustice, we should go through a process of self-purification and empty ourselves of ourselves so that our motives are right and so that we hear from heaven on how we're supposed to move forward. I think about Nehemiah and I think, your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and he will direct your path. And then after self-purification, I think that we should begin to move. I think that that's where we're at in the church right now. I think that that's where we are at as a church. I think we've gone through a process of self-purification. I really do. Now, we live a lifestyle of repentance, and we're going to 
remain in that state going forward. But there was always a time for mourning, fasting, and weeping, and then that time was done. Did you know that? There was a time for mourning, fasting, and weeping, and then it was done. And then after that, you move forward. And I believe that that's where we're at. When we're talking about the changing of the season. That's what I mean. That we have gone through the period of self-purification, fasting, mourning, and weeping, repentance, checking our own hearts. And we will continue to do that to a certain extent. But the season that we are in will be defined by victory as we move forward. At a meeting of the Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. Now, I want you to remember, we're not going to go through all the history of this. Jesus came in about 30 AD. There were no real successful missionary efforts since then to reach the rest of the world since Catholicism or since Rome declared Christianity as the official religion. No real or successful efforts to reach the world with the gospel for 1,500 years. And in the 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Such an attitude is inconceivable today, largely due to the subsequent efforts of that young man. His name was William Carey, and he would become known as the father of modern missions. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Look at verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but the Ammonites, the Moabites, which is where the Horonite came from, trace their lineage back to Lot. Lot's daughters had babies from him. And those babies would go on to be Moab and Ammon. And they would grow up to be enemies of the people of God. And so they came back and they would be chief figures in this story with Nehemiah, antagonist, trying to stop him from doing the work that God had called him to do. So let's bring all this together. When you see eight white clergymen posting a newspaper article saying, a call to unity. And they're saying, hey, Dr. King, you should settle down on all this stuff that you're doing. You're an outside agitator. I want to tell you that's Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite. It's that same spirit. The man who says, sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. That's Sanballat and Tobiah. When we step forward to do what God is calling us to do, make no mistake about it. The antagonist will appear. We're giving a little bit of insight into what's going to happen on the journey as we move forward. Sanballats and Tobias will appear more and more. They've been a part of our journey at different times as a church. 
but we're going to see them, and they'll rise up. And you know what's always crazy? Is that their arguments always seem logical. They appeal to our logic and to our reason. Doesn't it sound right for these guys to tell Dr. King, hey, just let the law take care of this. It's working its way out in, in the courts, and it will happen, maybe a little slower than you think. But this is a call to unity. Let peace, let peace reign. Sounds logical. But he had been given a call by God. Something had been put on his heart, and he had to do it. And nobody could stop him. That has to be where we're at. God puts a call on our hearts. I must go back and I must rebuild and I can rebuild it. God will bring the provision that you need. He'll bring the protection that you need. Maybe you look at your family and you say that intimacy hasn't existed between me and my wife or me and my husband for a long time now. Not healthy intimacy. Our relationship lies in ruins. I can rebuild it. Can you guys say that? I can rebuild it. My children seem far off. I don't seem to have their hearts. They seem to be drawn away and distracted by other things. And I feel distant from them. Our relationship is in ruins. I can rebuild it. Can you say that? I can rebuild it. I look around at the reputation that I have at work and I've lost my reputation. I've done things like lose my attitude or maybe I've popped off to a customer or to my boss and now I've given up hope that this is where God has me. I can rebuild it. I can rebuild it. The things that I've invested myself into, my family into, I'm watching and I see they're temporary. They're not what I thought that they would be. The direction that I've taken my family in is worldly and I want to change that I can rebuild it say it come on I can rebuild it the state of the church is something that is broken it's all about man-pleasing entertainment and comfort I can rebuild it I can rebuild it but what's going to happen Always be watching out for the Sanballats and the Tobias. You go to start rebuilding intimacy in your marriage. What's going to happen? Sanballat and Tobiah might even pop up in your spouse. Come to give you a little bit of a visit. And they'll appeal to your logic and to your reason. And you'll want to give up the task. But you can't. Because you've been permitted by the king to move forward. And as you do, what will be yours? Provision. And protection. He was pleased to send you to do this holy work. Today, we have to take this attitude. God has called us to rebuild his kingdom, not our own. The first time the word rebuild is used in the Bible is about the rib that's taken out of Adam. It says that your Bible may say he reshaped it or reformed it or fashioned it, but that word is the same word, rebuild. And he built it into his bride. God is up for the task of rebuilding. Are you? Stand with me.
I want to ask you do, you, do you feel what we're talking about deep down in your gut? Some of you, I know that you do. I know that you feel deep down in your gut some of the things that we're addressing. And I want to tell you that that's not because you're being moved by some emotion here in this room. It's because God is calling out to you right now. Will you rebuild it? Will you care about the things that I care about? Will you leave your own comfort? Will you leave your own kingdom, your own reputation? All the luxury of Babylon. Will you leave it to rebuild my kingdom? In Revelation, the call goes back out because Babylon was always more than just a city. It was a system. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 11. In 2 Chronicles 36, we see that the Chaldeans came in and stole everything from the temple and burned it all down. And in Revelation, we see that Babylon has become this world system that has enslaved the people. And the call goes out as in Isaiah 48, it goes out in Revelation to come out of her, my people, come out of her, my people, leave. Don't let Babylon and the systems of this world dictate how you'll live your life, but flee from it and instead build the kingdom of God, which is eternal. Live in the fruit of righteousness. Let the nation see that God has put his name on your heart. So that they might fear the Lord. So that they might know freedom. They might know this king who is pleased to send those who serve him. Pleased to provide for them. Pleased to protect them. Ready. Willing. That's the heart of our king. I can rebuild it. I can rebuild it. No more finger pointing. No more blaming. No more victim. Not us. Not anymore. I can rebuild it. Like Nehemiah, I will go back to this. I will read what it says and I will let it dictate what I do going forward. You are credited with Christ's righteousness, but now it's time to display righteousness to the world. Let's pray. Mighty God, let our call to action be when we leave this place to live out what we have heard. Father, if you've moved on the hearts of your sons and daughters this morning, then let it result in living out the kind of truth that sets people free. Because how can we set others free if we ourselves are not truly free? And if we are not setting others free, then are we truly free? So, Father, would you convict our hearts this morning and let us follow in the example of the great men that have gone before us. Let your word come alive. Let it prick our hearts. Let it move us forward and direct our steps. And God, we will trust you for provision and protection. We won't bring about our provision and protection by our own hand or by our own strength. And we won't neglect to pray. We won't neglect to petition or to plan. Father, we thank you that you are pleased to send us. Pleased to send us and to give us all authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy so that nothing will harm us. Thank you, God, that you have partnered with us. Help us to rebuild. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.